0: Our sermon text today is Psalm 31. It's a long, uh, rather long text for as the psalms go, uh, so if you're not able to stand for a long reading, uh, don't feel the need to do that. But I'll ask those of you who can to stand for the reading of God's word today. Psalm 31. Give ear to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress." My eye is wasted from grief, and my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of the enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you, his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This ends the reading of God toward you, may be seated. Grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Again, we thank you that you've given it to us as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, and a lamp uh, first and foremost that points us and shines a light on the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this morning that you would work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 31 is one of the longer psalms, at least in the early part of, of the Psalter. As I was studying and reading up, up on it, uh, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it's, it's hard to find two commentators or scholars that, that divide the book the same way. It's not one of those uh, texts, which aren't always the way the psalms are, that are easy to outline. There isn't uh, an easy A B C one two three way to, uh, to to diagram it. Out the flow isn't that kind of a psalm. Sometimes the psalms are very much like our hearts. Thankfully, thankfully so. You know, our, our hearts often aren't uh, due to our circumstances neat and orderly. Things don't always go in an A B C fashion, especially during a time of grief or suffering or affliction, which is what David is going through. In this in this psalm, we don't know what he was going through, but we do know whatever it was, it was very uh, very much a serious thing uh, for him. And one of the things in the psalms that we sometimes, I know I do, sometimes don't pay much attention to, is uh, the very first part of the psalm, the part that appears really before verse one in our in our Bibles, and it's often referred to as the superscription. In our text, it just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. What what does it tell us? Is there anything in that? There's nothing that jumps off the page at you or me, I don't think, from that. It just tells us who wrote the psalm. Who wrote the psalm? King David. And it was meant to be sung in the public worship of God by his people. Now, that, that probably doesn't seem very noteworthy. It's not the only psalm that has that very brief, simple superscription above it but Charles Spurgeon makes the following observation he says the dedication to the chief musician proves that this song of mingled measures and alternate strains of grief and woe was intended for public singing and thus a death blow is given to the notion that nothing but praise should be sung perhaps the psalms thus marked might have been set aside as too mournful for temple worship if special care had not been taken by the Holy Spirit to indicate them as being designed for the public edification of the Lord's people. I think that's very instructive. And so it is a good thing by God's providence and his inspiration of the scriptures that he did put that that superscription above our text as simple and innocuous as it might seem to remind us that this was to the choir master. Uh, is to tell us that this is something to be sung. The psalms are to be read, they're to be studied, they're to be read and studied for edification, they're to be preached, as we're doing even now, but they're also meant, first and foremost, for the worship of God's people. There's a Christian radio station, a music station, that is available in our area and elsewhere, and they have a tagline that you hear on their their little uh, jingles and things, their commercials, that they're, quote, positive and encouraging. And there's nothing wrong with being positive and encouraging. I wouldn't expect a radio station to last very long. If they specialized in laments or funeral dirges, people would change the channel rather quickly. I would change the channel rather quickly. I don't want to hear that when I'm driving uh, to work. But our worship should never be limited to what is positive or encouraging or upbeat. I hope there's a lot of encouraging and positive things in our services, in the preaching and our singing, but it shouldn't be limited to that. The songs that we sing in worship really you should say they should not always be upbeat. If we're honest. The scripture, they aren't all that way in the book of Psalms, the song book of the Bible, they're not always upbeat. In fact, a good number of them are lament psalms and this one has at least uh, one uh, an aspect of lament to it. They shouldn't always be upbeat. They shouldn't certainly shouldn't always be entertaining. And if we allow the Psalms to guide our worship and our lives as we should and include them in our worship, uh, they will safeguard us against such a mindset. They'll safeguard us against such an imbalance in our worship and in our lives. Now, People these days, even in the church, are always talking about the need for authenticity. Maybe you've heard that. That's kind of the new buzzword now. I don't know what the next one will be, but right now authenticity is a big a big buzzword even in the church. Well, I would say that Psalm 31, uh, it doesn't get much more authentic than that. Most of us at one time or another in our life can read a psalm like Psalm 31 and identify with what David is talking about there. Well, the first thing we want to look at in psalm is, is David's distress. It's kind of written, like I said, uh, his, his distress is pointed out here and there all over the psalm. He doesn't limit it to one part of the psalm. He doesn't just talk about it in the beginning or the middle. In fact, it takes up a lot, a lot of the the psalm. And David is facing some kind of suffering, some kind of affliction. Seems like it's coming from all different sides, from all kinds of different sources. And he doesn't waste any time getting right down to it, does he? Verses 1 and 2, he starts the psalm off this way. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Not in my righteousness. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. David's sending out an SOS. He's pulling the fire alarm. He's calling 911 to the Lord. He's calling on God, on His God, for refuge, for deliverance, for speedy rescue, and as the only one who could be that rock of refuge, he called upon the Lord, His God. What What was David's circumstance? What What was it that he was dealing with that That brought such an alarmed prayer, such a a, a really a, a an emotional prayer and praise? and psalm to God. The superscription, again, doesn't really help us with that. Sometimes they do. This one, it does not. Uh, It's it's really hard, I think. Some have tried to guess what the circumstance was, what the situation uh, was. uh, Personally, if there's any indication of of which historical situation David was dealing with, I haven't found it. Uh, I'll have to be uh, humble enough in my own uh, sense to just say I don't know what it is, and I won't pretend to tell you that I do know what what it is, I haven't figured that out. It could be applied, if you read through the story of David in the scripture in your Old Testament, uh, probably any number of his trials could have been the one that he dealt with here. And I think in this particular case, the ambiguity of it is probably helpful to us in that it helps us to not pigeonhole it in one particular thing that we can't identify with. I think in this particular case, Uh, The ambiguity helps you and I to apply these words more directly, more easily to our own various situations, afflictions, and trials. Well, what does David himself, in the psalm at least, tell us of his circumstances at the time of writing the psalm? It's clear he was suffering greatly at the hands of enemies, uh, for he mentions them very often, verses 4, verse 8, verse 11, verse 15, all throughout the psalm. He either names them as far as the word enemy or adversary, or he speaks of what they were doing to him, plotting against him and things like like that. It's clear that he was suffering at the hands of his enemies, uh, that some of that suffering came in the form of slanderous accusations or evil speaking of him. Verses 11 to 13, verse 18, verse 20. In verse 11, he speaks of his, quote, adversaries who have caused him to become A reproach. Luke's giving me an amen there. Uh, His enemies caused him to become a reproach even to his neighbors, he says in the text. He speaks of these adversaries scheming together against him and plotting, not just plotting against him, plotting to do what? To take his life. In verse 15, he speaks of persecutors. Think about that. The king had persecutors. We tend to think, you know, the, the bigger you get, the more important we get, the more money we have. Whatever the case, you know, life becomes a lot more easy. You have, you have people to take care of these things. Uh, the king had persecutors to the extent that even his neighbors viewed him as a reproach because of their slanders against him. His good name was under assault. We often think lightly of that, but we really shouldn't. His good name was under assault. Think about this, we, we don't like being slandered, no one does. But how much worse is it for a public figure? How much worse is it for King David? The, the, the Lord's anointed, the one who slayed Goliath, the one who was, the, in, in, a, in a sense, uh, the picture of Christ, the champion of his people, had his name dragged through the mud to such a way that no one wanted to be around him. People avoided him like the plague. That's what he was dealing with. And not only that, his very life seemed to be in danger. They plotted, he says, to take his life. We have no reason to think he was being facetious or exaggerating. Suddenly, my week doesn't quite seem so bad, after all. You know, if that wasn't already bad enough, if that was all David said, that would be hard enough, wouldn't it? It would be hard. I think most of us, if not all of us, would have a hard time even with that little bit of information, putting ourselves in his shoes, I don't know that I've ever had anyone plot against my life. Maybe you haven't probably either. but he mentions something in verse 10 that's kind of the, the topper, the thing that the last straw, the thing that breaks the camel's back. And what he talks about there, he mentions his own sins and quote, "iniquity" in verse 10. All the enemies, all the slander, all the persecution, all the plots against his life, all the plots against his his good name and reputation. Uh, maybe he could probably deal with all that, but when he brought to his mind his mind, his iniquity, that weighed on him maybe more than all the rest of it. It caused his strength, he says, to fail, and it caused his life to be filled with sorrow. And isn't isn't that the way for us as the people of God? even as Christians, even today. What's one of the first things, maybe the first thing that comes to our minds, to your mind and to mine, when you're suffering? Isn't it your sin? Isn't it often the case that when you're suffering, when you're undergoing affliction or trial of some kind, that your sins, your failings, your shortcomings in mind come to our minds? Is it not the many ways that you may have brought on the sorrows and afflictions upon your own heads by your sins and transgressions. Is that not how our minds often work? What do we say? I must have done... We say it for good and for bad, don't we? If something good happens, we might think it or say it. You must have done something right. When things go badly for us, when they go really badly, as they did for David here, uh, I think very often we think the same words meaning the exact opposite thing. We must have done something. We are very much to ourselves often like Job's, quote, friends in the book of Job. Give glory to God. You must have done something. Well, we've done far more than enough to deserve whatever we may have had come upon us. Our our iniquities, our sins have a way of amplifying our sufferings, don't they? And David certainly dealt with that here in, in Psalm Thirty-one. His sins made it worse. Our sins make our sufferings even worse. It's no wonder that in verses 9 to 10, he says this, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. You might have heard, uh, when you heard that last phrase, you might have thought uh, you heard shades of the very next psalm, Psalm 32, which does talk about bones, uh, bones wasting away because of iniquity. The same themes come up in the very next psalm, and in a lot of ways, Psalm 32 is connected with Psalm 31 in the words and things that Paul, that, that excuse me, that David uses. In that psalm he talks about, when he kept silent, what happened? His bones, same thing, his bones wasted away. He felt his iniquities all the way down into his bones. It was a spiritual arthritis of some kind. You could think of it in that way. The only remedy for that was what? Acknowledging his sin, confessing his transgression to the Lord, his God, Psalm thirty-two, five. No wonder he speaks there in that psalm. In Psalm 32, of the blessedness of having your transgressions forgiven and your sins covered. I can't wait to preach now next month, Psalm 32, but I'll digress for the time being. Have you ever felt anything like what David writes here in Psalm 31 and in Psalm 32? Have you ever felt such anguish in body and soul? Both. You know, we, we often talk about body and soul and things, but they go together. The one affects the other both ways often when you're sick in your body it often affects your soul it affects your heart and vice versa when you're sick in soul it often affects our bodies as well have you ever felt it in your bones you probably have and if not you probably will one day if so know this I say this very often but it's for good reason know that you're in good company David wasn't excused From sorrow, David wasn't excused from anguish like this, and from persecution, and from affliction. You're in good company. Even King David, the Lord's very anointed, the slayer of Goliath again, had been there. He's been there repeatedly, if you've read the story of David in the scriptures. For most of us, if we're honest... I think David's description of suffering and affliction would be an exaggeration if we tried to apply it to ourselves directly. We might be able to sympathize with the way that David felt when he wrote this psalm, but we can't really identify, most of us, I think, with his actual circumstances, the way he paints the picture of here. I don't think often that we're in physical danger from adversaries, although that that may be changing very soon, as, as Rob mentioned in his prayer this morning. Uh, There may be a time uh, in our near future when that's a reality, when this isn't so hypothetical anymore, this part of David's prayer in Psalm 31. Well, well, David's description of his own sufferings and and afflictions in Psalm 31, uh, I don't believe was an exaggeration. I don't believe he was uh, exaggerating for effect. But in in a sense, his sufferings, as real and terrible as they are in Psalm 31, I think are really, in a sense... Faint, very faint echoes of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the redeeming of his people from our sins. And so David's description of his sufferings, it, it shouldn't just lead us to consider our own sufferings, although it should, and although it certainly does. Ultimately, David's description of his own afflictions and his enemies should lead us to consider Christ himself and his sufferings on behalf of his people. If King David was afflicted and cast down, King Jesus was more so. If David was surrounded by enemies who spoke evil of him and sought to take even his life, Jesus was even more so, and nowhere more so than he was at the cross. If David's bones wasted away with grief because of his own iniquity, and we know some of his own sins from what the scriptures tell us, surely Christ's agony in Gethsemane And on the cross, in bearing all the iniquity of his people, was infinitely worse. Jesus, his bones didn't waste away from his own iniquity because he had none. He was the sinless, spotless son of God, the spotless lamb without blemish. And yet, as that, he bore all of our sins and iniquities on the cross. How much worse did his bones waste away from that infinite and awful load Isaiah 53 a familiar chapter to many of you verses 3 and 4 it says or 3 to 6 rather it says this it is written he was despised Jesus he was despised and rejected by men sounds a lot like what David was writing about a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces see the same kind of description in Psalm 31 he was despised and we esteemed him not To his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. He didn't bear his own iniquity. He bore ours on the cross. Psalm 31 isn't the only one. But Psalm 31 is really a psalm of the cross. It's not the kind of psalm of the cross that we think of when you think of Psalm 22, which is a much more graphic description of his crucifixion. Uh, But while Psalm 31 might remind you and I of our losses and crosses, and every believer is called to take up his cross and follow Christ, Matthew 16, 24, uh, it only brings us real and lasting comfort if we let Psalm 31 point us back to the cross of our Savior who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, the one upon whom the Lord has imputed the iniquities of us that's, all. That's really what Psalm 53 is painting a picture of there, is imputation, that big theological word, where, where God takes your sins and mine, our iniquities, and accounts them to Christ on the cross, accounts them to the sinless one, and then he takes Christ's righteousness and accounts it to us by faith so that we can be forgiven and accepted by a holy God. You know, the New Testament's use of Psalm 31 points us in that direction as well, doesn't it? It points us, it makes us look at Christ in this psalm. And it doesn't just make us look at Christ in some general sense. You know, there are many things in the the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. All kinds of things throughout Christ's earthly life and ministry, even before the cross and the resurrection where whatever it happens to be, whether it be something Christ did, whether it's something Christ said, something about him, that fulfilled Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophecy. But Psalm 31 points us to the cross directly. Of all the things about our Lord Jesus Christ, it could point us to. It points us to the cross. We saw back when we looked at Psalm 22 that, that Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, while he was hanging on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Well, the Lord, you might know, quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, also from the cross, which tells us, as we've seen even last week, talking about the sword of the Spirit, and we saw that Christ memorized and quoted and used uh, to fend off the temptations of of the evil one three different quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus Christ memorized... Portions of the word of his father, according to his human nature. He he studied, he read, he thought about, he prayed, he memorized scripture. When you hear him quoting the Psalms from the cross, that should tell us something. These Psalms, even Psalm 31, are useful and beneficial to us to memorize and to think about and to commit to memory. And what did he say there when he was dying on the cross? He said, into your hand I commit my spirit. Luke 23 Forty-six. He quoted Psalm 31 verse 5 from the cross. And it's because Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners like you and me that we can look back to the Lord as the rock of our salvation as David does in this psalm. As we can, It's because of that that we can look to him as our refuge in time of trouble as David does in this psalm. In verses 14 to 15 David says this, But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God my time my times are in your hand rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors you notice the repetition in that those verses of the word hand whose times are david's whose hand rather are david's times actually in did it always feel like his times were in the lord's hand no in fact what does he say rescue me from the Hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. The hand that comes to mind quickly is that of his enemies. But what does he remind himself of and us of? In this psalm, my times are in your hand, not in my enemies' hands, in the Lord's hands. The great 17th century Bible commentator you might know of, Matthew Henry, uh, he notes that in these verses, verses 14 to 15, David comforts himself Primarily with two things, two thoughts, two truths grounded in the gospel. And these are the same two things that you and I are called to look to in this psalm and from this psalm to comfort ourselves in time of affliction and persecution and suffering. First is that in Christ God is what? He's our God. He's not just God in general. He's not just the one true and living God, although he is that, but He's our God. And as Paul says in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who then can be against us? Is the one true and living God not just God? Is he your God? Can you call him your God, my God, not just God, the one who created you, but your Redeemer as well? Can you claim him as your own as David does in verse 14? He says, I trust in you, O Lord. Why? I say you are my God. Who's his God? The Lord is his God. His God. The second thing is found in verse 15 where David says, My times are in your hand. If God is our God, then he has our very times in his hand. Everything about our lives is held in the hand of an omnipotent heavenly father who cares for us. His hand of providence is a great comforter. It should be to us as his people. We would do well, each one of us, no matter what our circumstance, to think about, to, to pray about, to contemplate what the scriptures tell us about God's providential care for his people. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. It's a soft pillow for anxious heads. What is providence? Our, our catechism says it's a... it's. It's God's uh, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's everything. He preserves all things, including us, but he also governs all things. There's nothing outside of his control and outside of his watchful eye, especially when it comes to his people. Because of Christ's sufferings and resurrection, you and I can take refuge as David does in God and the Lord, trusting that our times... All of our times are in his hand. And because he's redeemed us in Christ and all of our times are in his hand, we can then say with David, as he does there in verse 5 Into your hand I commit my spirit. Why? You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Even his soul, his spirit, he could commit to the hand of God because he knew he had been redeemed by the Lord, his faithful God. Because that was Christ's cry on the cross, one of them. It can be our cry as well, whether we're in distress or even on our deathbeds. That was David's cry in time of trouble. In the New Testament, that was Stephen's similar cry and confession, even as he was being martyred for his testimony to the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, as he was being stoned to death, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same exact mindset. Maybe Stephen, who we know from that chapter, knew much of the Old Testament. Maybe he had Psalm 31 in his mind as well. For every believer in Jesus Christ, our times, your times and mine, are in his hand. And so we can call upon him as our rock and as our refuge and as our strong fortress. And we'll close with the words that David says, If you want application, David gives it to us right at the end of the psalm, although he gives it to us throughout the psalm, doesn't he? He says, love the Lord. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait upon the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word doesn't just deal uh, with with the the happy things, the the pleasant things, but that your word even tells us how to think, how to pray, how to worship, even how to sing in worship in time of distress, in time of, of affliction, in time of even persecution. And we praise you and thank you that because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to be the the propitiation for our sins, that we might be forgiven and accepted by you, by a holy God, that that you are now because of him no longer our our judge, because of our sin and our iniquity, but that you have placed all of our iniquities upon your son. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust because of his work on our behalf, even his continuing work in interceding for us at your right hand that we can be sure that all of our times are safely in your hand. Give us grace to be strong, to look to you as our refuge and our rock, and give us grace, even as David says at the end of the psalm, to love you, Lord, because of your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.